listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. I'm going to need your input really quick, so uh, go ahead and take that final sip of coffee and, uh, and clue in, okay? Are you ready? Uh, what, I, what I'm going to ask that you do is just kind of play back your past week in your mind really quickly. Just play it back, and you're like, man, I've thought a lot of things, okay? Just play it back, and as you do, as you rewind, think for a second, what was it that you kept thinking would bring you peace? So do that right now. As you think about your week, what is it that came up that you thought would bring you peace? Anyone willing to be courageous enough to share that with me this morning? Yeah, go for it. Yes, just having like a decent, easy. That's good, yeah. Yeah, if there were no interruptions in today, I might have peace. Yeah, what else? Yes, if my children would just obey, then I would have peace. That's good. Somebody over here, raise their hand. Yeah, Dave. Yes, if, if my daughter would get home from college, then I'd have peace. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. More sleep. If I could just find more sleep. If I just had rest, then I really would have peace. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking along the same line. VBS was amazing and exhausting all at the same time. And I thought as soon as VBS is done, then peace will come, right? And then something else came up, you know? Anybody else want to share? If I had more money, if I had enough money, then I would have peace. Yeah. One more. If I can just get to the weekend, then I'll have peace. Yeah. We all want peace, don't we? I think that whether you shared it or not would resonate with everyone this morning. Every single one of us, Christian or non-Christian, wants some sort of peace. The question is, are we looking for it in the right place? Are we finding it? peace from the right person. You see, this morning, I want us to comprehend together that Jesus Christ alone, you'll see that in the text, brings the things that makes for peace. As we look at the text, we'll see together three aspects of Jesus's identity, the one that makes for peace. First, in verses 28 through 35, Lane already read that, but I want us to get into the scriptures together. We see that Jesus is Messiah. That is his identity. That is who Jesus is. Look there with me in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, I'm going to stop there in the minute, the middle of that sentence, and I'm going to provide for us a, just a bit of context. After all, the the timing of these places and events are extremely important because we're moving in to the last week of Jesus's life. On on the coming Friday, what's happening? 
Jesus is going to the cross, right? Now, Bethany was about two miles from the city of Jerusalem on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And it was in Bethany that just weeks prior, Jesus raises his friend from the dead. What's his friend's name? Lazarus. He raises Lazarus from the dead. John records that in chapter 11 of his gospel account. And after spending a few weeks there in Bethany, he begins to travel south again after heading north before that into Galilee. And now he's coming across the Jordan River into the city of Jericho. He stays in Jericho, just for background, for two days. And while he's there, he heals two blind beggars and saves them from their sins. Two more being added to the disciples of Jesus Christ. But it's not just two, and it's not just a small crowd that's hanging around Jesus at this point. In fact, we're moving into the week of Passover, where there as many as two million Jewish people heading into the city of Jerusalem to see that Passover is celebrated. There are a lot of people on this road heading there with Jesus. The roads are filled. People are everywhere. And in verse 28, we see that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. Having just told, we saw last week the parable of the 10 minus, and we saw the week before that that Zacchaeus, the wee little man, was given a new heart. So all of that has just taken a place while we find ourselves moving into the last week of Jesus's life. So they're walking, and they've heard all this stuff about who Jesus is, what Jesus has been doing, but this was no joy stroll, you see. Because as we see in John chapter 11, verse 57, we're told that there's an alert out for Jesus' rest. It says there, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. That's what's happening as Jesus journeys to the city of Jerusalem. But this wasn't going to phase Jesus, was it? Because remember back in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, if you've been journeying along with us, Jesus there sets his very face toward the city of Jerusalem. Nothing was going to deter him from this destination. This was why he was created. Now, well, he wasn't created. This is what he was doing. He was going to the city of Jerusalem. Now, drawing near to Bethphage and Bethany, he was close. In John chapter 12, verse 1, we're told that Jesus arrived in Bethany six days before the celebration of Passover. Now, that's important. Six days before the celebration of Passover, and this year... Passover is on Friday, so this would have been the Saturday before. That's where we are, given the context. We see in the same chapter in John that a dinner was had there in honor of Jesus. So he's with his friends, Mary, Martha, and the recently resurrected Lazarus. They're all celebrating, and people have heard what he has done. We also know that Judas was present, the disciple of Jesus, an ever-present reminder for Jesus of what he would be facing in just six days. There were six days before Jesus would take on the sins of every single person who would ever believe. 
the next day, Sunday, word would have gotten out that Jesus was in the city of Bethany at Lazarus' house. So many people have joined. They want to see Jesus, but they also want to see Lazarus to see if it's true that he had been resurrected from the dead. So it's possibly even Monday when he finally rides into Jerusalem. This is the day that he sends two of his disciples and he tells them, look there with me in verse 30. Go into the village in front of you. Perhaps this was Bethphage, where on entering you will find a cult tied on which no one has ever sat. Jesus says, untie it and bring it here. Now, we're dealing with the Messiah here, remember? Israel's deliverer is finally coming. Nothing is coincidental about anything that you read, see, or hear. And so when Luke records that this cult is to be one on which no one has ever sat, there's a specific reason for this. We're supposed to think when we hear about this cult on which no one has ever sat, some some really vivid things. One, we're supposed to think pure. Two, we're supposed to think ready for sacrifice. That's, that's the, what we're supposed to understand as we hear about this cult. We're supposed to think about animals like the ones in Numbers chapter 19 that the people are told to bring to sacrifice animals without blemish or defect. Animals like in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that have never been worked or pulled in a yoke. Think of Wagyu beef. Any, any fans out there? Wagyu? Have you, have you been blessed to, to eat from that? Yeah? Well, the only thing that I've come close to as far as Wagyu is concerned is a meatball. And it was, I know, Corey's shaking his head at me like you, yeah, I'm sorry. That, that's, yeah, I felt that. But I've had a meatball, and it was delicious. Now, if you don't know anything about Wagyu, there is something that is really special about these Wagyu cows. Because people spend a lot of time with their cows individually if they're raising Wagyu beef, okay? So much time that there are massagers that come out to these cows and just massage them for hours on end. They feed them non-alcoholic beer to offer them relaxation. It's, It's insane. You can look it up. They also sometimes put them in environments where they're listening to music to keep them as relaxed as possible so that meat is as good as it possibly can be. Now you say, Chris, what what in the world does this cult have to do with Wagyu beef? Because I'm not not feeling it. Here's what I want you to hear about this. All of that is done to the Wagyu beef cow just so that cow can be slaughtered. As Jesus tells his disciples to go and get this cult on which no one has ever sat, we must not miss the picture here. Although this time, it's not the cult that is needing to be ready for sacrifice, but rather the one who is riding it. That's the picture that we're supposed to see. And Jesus, the one who will ride this cult on which no one has ever sat before, has prepared himself as a perfect, pure 
sinless sacrifice. Jesus, the Messiah, is born to be slaughtered so that the world might know the things that make for peace. Do you see the picture here? It's all happening before their eyes. Nothing is coincidental about this moment. Verse 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And I'm, I'm reading this particular passage and I'm thinking, I finally know where the, the child's game of password came from, right? You, if Every child has done this. Maybe adults still do it. I, I don't do it anymore. But you know, somebody's walking through a door and you're like, what's the password? This is where it came from, it seems, right? When the guy asks you, where, why are you untying it? The password is this, the Lord has need of it. See, you already got it. They're secure as they come. Nobody's going to guess that. We don't know if Jesus had a friend or if something much more mysterious and supernatural is taking place here, but we do know that Jesus is here on the right day at the right time, and he has arranged everything for this to take place. Prophecy is being fulfilled right before their eyes. Messianic proclaiming a mode of transportation, nothing is stopping him from getting to the city of Jerusalem. And it is this password, this phrase, the Lord has need of it, that would usher him into his very city. Verse 32. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? Now, my son has recently picked up this dramatic clearing of his throat. Somebody just did that a second ago. And um, the other night, uh, we were sitting at the dinner table, and he said that he wanted to give thanks for our food. And so he stands up on this bench that we have at our kitchen table, um, all two feet of him, and he stands up and he says, Father, you know, and I was just like, me and Dory are looking at him like, what, what is happening right now, you know? Oh, I can see this playing out in my mind, though, as the disciples say, uh, you know, as they say this to the man, and, and he says, why are you untying it? They're thinking, we got this, right? Like, this is, this is what Jesus told us was going to happen, verse 34. And they said, the Lord has need of it. Like, this is going to work, right? And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. Now, the disciples here, they've made a makeshift saddle. They've put their coats on this colt. The Messiah, the Deliverer, is before them. I don't want us to miss that Jesus has done everything to see the world would have peace. Everything. He laid it out perfectly. Not only do we see that Jesus is Messiah, the deliverer, the long-awaited one, the savior of the world, but we also in this text see that Jesus is king. Another aspect of his identity in verses 36 through 40. Look there in the Bible with me. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, 
As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, all of this makes for an incredible scene of rejoicing, doesn't it? Here was the moment the disciples were taking it in all together, praising God for the mighty works that he had done, all the mighty works that Jesus had been doing and that they had seen. It was so easy right here and now to attribute these works to the almighty God. They had obviously come from him. Their king was riding into his city just as they assumed that he would to take his rightful place as what? king. And so the other disciples around him, the crowds that had gathered, began to spread their garments and wave palm branches, as we see in John's gospel on the road before him, a red carpet of sorts for their dignitary that it was being ushered into this city. But this was no ordinary coronation, was it? It was much like Jesus's birth. Humble. No fanfare. No pomp and circumstance, no crowns, no jewels, a cult, an animal known for sacrifice, some coats, and palm branches. Matthew and John's gospel record a recitation from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So everyone sees this donkey, this colt, and Jesus riding in as the fulfillment of this and couldn't help in that moment but to revere him as king. Some shouting, Hosanna, others shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace and glory in the highest. The king is here. Jesus riding on a colt, not recorded to have been saying a word in this moment, is coming as the prince of peace. We have to wonder, though, were they coronating as king Jesus, someone who he was not? Brothers and sisters here with me this morning, are you guilty of worshiping Jesus for the one that you hope he will be? For the things that you hope that he will do for you? Instead of worshiping Jesus, the Messiah and King, for the thing that he is. Looking forward to the things that he will do, not for you, but through you. Could that be us at times? Could we be looking to Jesus as someone he is not? Now, never before in Jesus' ministry had he allowed such a public display, but now it was time. You see, in the past, as he had performed miracles, as he had given the blind sight, as he had given the deaf uh, the ability to hear, he kept saying, not now, don't tell them who I am, refrain from that, but now it was time. It was the place, the week was right, and Friday ahead of him would be the day that Jesus goes to the cross. Now, give me a chance just for a moment to explain why Friday of this year is the day that Jesus is going to the cross. 
while those crucifying thought that it was within their power and control to see that Jesus would die, it certainly was not. We sang of that earlier this morning. It was the plan of God before the foundations of the world to see that Jesus would go to the cross to see that his people's sin were forgiven. That was not up to the guards that sent him to his death. It was up to God Almighty. And Jesus was going to the cross. And Friday is the day that Jesus dies on the cross because that would have been the day when the Passover lambs were slain. And that is the day when Jesus goes to the cross as the full and final Passover lamb, the true and better lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The timing is not coincidental. It's providential. This is the plan of Almighty God, I tell you that because today is likely Monday in the passage. This is the day when Jewish families would take their lamb that they were going to pat, that they were going to slaughter or sacrifice at the end of the week, and they would bring that lamb inside of their homes, and they would treat the lamb as a member of the family, as a pet of the family, and they would care for that lamb all week, and they would love on that lamb, knowing in just a few short days that it would be slaughtered as but a symbol of sacrifice for the family's sins. So on the day, Monday, as the families are bringing in these lambs into their home, Jesus is riding in on a colt that no one has ever sat on before into his city on that very day. It's all happening at the perfect time. Jesus, the Messiah, was fulfilling prophecy. He's showing his omniscience, his knowing of the cult, his explaining of the conversation that the disciples would have with the cult's owner. And as he enters into the city, with this as the backdrop to the crowd, humbly proclaiming, your king is here, peace has come. Isn't that amazing? Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these stones, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, the Pharisees, you see, they couldn't stand the jubilee and the fanfare that they had found themselves in the middle of. They didn't want Jesus to be a part of it. They didn't want the Jews to be a part of it. And much more than that, they couldn't stand to see Jesus be revered as the Messiah. But being the good Pharisees that they were, they couldn't really imagine using physical force in that moment either. So they attempt to employ the leader, Jesus. Jesus, you quiet your people down. Tell them to stop. Rebuke them. And Jesus replies, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. We can't miss what Jesus is telling them there. First, he says this, their shouting is inevitable. 
Again, he's kept them silent up until this point. As he healed people, he told them to tell no one, but now it's out. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is King. He's in the city on the right week, on the right day, and no one can stop the world from hearing this news. Second, even if they did stop, which they won't, but even if they do, If those who are acclaiming him were to be silent, the very stones would cry out as a witness to his very identity, that Jesus is Messiah and that Jesus is King. Jesus was declaring before the Pharisees right here in that moment by refusing to acknowledge him that the Pharisees were even more spiritually blind than the inanimate stones right in front of them. Because if my disciples... Stop praising me, Jesus says. Those inanimate stones are going to speak in their place. Some say that where they were standing at this moment, they had this beautiful view of the city of Jerusalem before them. And at that time, they could see the temple, the temple of God, the place where everyone came to bring their offerings of sacrifice. And it was this temple where God was honored, those stones, this beautiful temple, they're looking at it right now. If my disciples stop, those stones are going to cry out in their place. And it's here in the midst of praise when the crowds are all shouting peace. The king is here. Hosanna, glory in the highest that Jesus speaks about coming destruction. Pastor John MacArthur says they're adoring him for what they want him to be. He tells them that he will be something very different than that. And so we see in verses 41 through 44, finally, that Jesus is not only Messiah and that Jesus is king, but that Jesus is also judge. Look there with me in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus Although deserving every ounce of praise that the crowds and his disciples were offering to him, knew what the enthusiasm that he was witnessing was worth. We see the joy of the crowd. We see the the shouting, the Hosanna, glory in the highest. And that's what we always preach on Palm Sundays. This is a beautiful, miraculous moment that Messiah and King is being issued and ushered into the city of peace. But what is the emotion that Jesus, the Messiah, is displaying here as he's receiving all of the praise and congratulations, the proclaiming, Jesus, our Messiah, is weeping. He's showing intense sadness, sorrow. We don't often take these passages together. 
Why is he crying? This seems like a good moment for the Savior of the world. It seems like a beautiful thing. The people are finally recognizing him in the way that he should be, or at least he seems. But the Messiah, you see, has not only come as king and Messiah, he also has come as judge. And the people that he weeps for could not comprehend the things that make for peace, he says. And it's ironic because Jerusalem, not to understand peace, the city in Hebrew, Yeru Shalom, the city of peace, those in the city don't know the very thing that they're made for. True peace, you see, can only be found in a relationship between creature and creator God. Peace can only come between God and man, and they didn't see this. And so the Messiah of the world, the long-awaited one, the deliverer, weeps because these things are now hidden from their eyes, Jesus says. And so Jesus begins to heave and solve agonizing over their very hearts that are singing his praise. As judge, you see, Jesus knew that the destruction of the city, of the temple, was inevitable. The temple, the stones would soon be destroyed, and for many of them, damnation would soon come. Why? The text is clear, because they didn't realize the day, the time of their visitation. They missed it when God's Messiah had come among them, dwelt before them. They missed the moment. One commentator said, these people had the revelation God had made known in the scriptures of the Old Testament, all of them. They had the continuing evidence that God was active in the life and ministry of Jesus. They could see in him that God had not forgotten his people, that he was there, that he had work to do. There was every reason for them to have welcomed Jesus as his disciples had just done, but they refused to accept all of that evidence. They didn't see the confirmation as we just spoke about. They rejected God's Messiah, and now they would live with the consequences of that rejection. It is that that brought forth Jesus' tears. Family, if God is weeping over those that his promise first went to, should we not do the same? Should we not feel an intense sadness and sorrow for those who have yet to trust in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins? We shouldn't be so quick to celebrate in the destruction of others. As our world is celebrating this entire month for something that God would oppose, we must not celebrate and laugh. We must weep to see that others would come to repentance by faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, that we would receive the heart that God has for us, his heart of compassion for those that have forsaken his peace for that of another. We've just explained it, those of you who are courageous enough to tell us what you were looking to for peace this week. 
instead of the peace that the Lord God can only bring through his son Christ, that we do the same. Let's not celebrate the peace that others have not found in Christ. We see in John's gospel that even the Messiah's disciples did not understand all that was happening, and they wouldn't until after Jesus is raised from the dead. And so I ask you, friends, we all want peace, but are we looking for it in the right place? Are we looking for it from the right person? You see, many in the crowd, the Pharisees, the disciples, they still thought that their biggest issues in all the world were something else. Marginalization from the Roman government. Difficult financial times were among them. Higher taxes. Not being recognized socially as the people that God had made them. They were not predominantly concerned about God's judgment or the forgiveness of their sins. And you know today, most still aren't. Why? Because we don't think that we need what only the gospel provides. We don't think that we need from Jesus the very things that make for peace. We think that we can make those things. And that our schedule will make those things. That money will make those things. That a break at work will make those things. That a different spouse would make those things. That obedient children would make those things. Jesus alone brings the things that make for peace. We don't need anything else. And so on this Monday... It's the same for the crowd outside of Jerusalem. They were excited about their new social status that was coming for them in the world. Jesus is finally taking his throne as king. They're hopeful that those things would turn around for them financially, that they would be respected like they were supposed to be in society, that they would no longer be marginalized as a people, but they were not thinking about their overwhelming need desperate need for the Messiah, their king, to come and lay down his life for their sins to bring them into a right standing with God, thereby bringing them the ultimate peace that we all need. They missed the fact that the peace they needed most was with God. Don't miss that this morning. Don't miss that. You see, God's visitation of his people in Christ would either bring salvation or judgment. If Jerusalem would not have Jesus as her savior, she would have him as her judge. If you will not have Jesus as your savior, you will have him as your judge. Jesus came on a colt with a donkey at his side, objects of sacrifice and peace. But I want to take you further in the scriptures. Because in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, he's going to return on a different animal. That day, Jesus is not coming back on a colt, but he's riding in on a horse. John writes, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. You see, those on that day will see Christ on his horse, and they will think victory is the Lord's. But those that have traded in his peace for another will see that horse and think judgment has certainly come for them. And so Jesus, weeping, says, if you had only known what makes for peace. What makes for peace, you say? Being right with a holy God. Peace comes only through faith, repenting of sins, of your sins, and trusting in Christ for their forgiveness. So will you trust in Christ Jesus today to bring you peace with God? You've heard the good news of Christ. That Jesus Christ, he lived a perfect life. He prepared himself spotless, without defect, without blemish. He lived a perfect life, a life that you and I could not live because you and I were in the womb sinners. We had the sin from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And because of that, we have been tainted, all of us, every one of us. Jesus lived a perfect life that you and I could not live. He died a death that you and I, because of our sin nature and our sin ing, deserved to die. And we deserved to take upon ourselves the wrath of God for our sin against a holy God. And we were supposed to take it upon ourselves for all eternity in damnation. In hell. Not popular things, not popular terms, but that is the gospel truth. And the beautiful news of the gospel is that Jesus, God Himself, King, Messiah, came, lived a perfect life. He died a death at the hands of angry men that you and I deserve to die. He died on that Friday. He was buried. And on the third day, He was resurrected proving that he was who he said he was, proving that he was over sin, that he had done away with sin on those parts that anyone who would believe in him, anyone who would trust in Christ Jesus by faith might have the forgiveness of sins. That is the beautiful news of the gospel. So you, my friend, have the opportunity to turn from your sins while it is still today. And judgment will be issued from Christ if rejected. So we see this beautiful, humble coronation. Jesus coming into his city, the city of peace, to bring the things that make for peace. And he weeps because some haven't turned. Family, I, I want to issue some challenges as we conclude this morning because it will be easy in just a moment as we participate in the family meal called communion. There's four stations around this room. And just in a moment, I'm going to invite those of you who are participants in the grace of God, who have trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, to come and participate in this meal. But it would be really easy for all of us to intellectually assent to these things, to say that, yes, I believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Yes, I believe that I was a, a sinner. Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ came for sinners, that he paid a sinner's debt. Yes, I can intellectually say and agree to those things. 
It will be easy for us to take communion and then to sing songs about that Christ right after that. But would you consider this morning, by the help of the Holy Spirit, whether or not your life testifies that Jesus is the one that makes for peace? Does your life testify to that fact? I have to be honest. If you peeled back my heart this week to find out where it would say that true peace is found, where I would say that true peace is found at moments, it would say something about, like I told you at the beginning, getting over this busy hump of vacation Bible school and then peace would come. It would say something, and agree with you, Brother Luke, that if I had the right outcomes to my parenting and my children obeyed perfectly, then peace would come. That's where I was oftentimes this week. Perhaps you would say, man, if I could just catch a break at work or if, if things would just clear up around the house, then I would say true peace is found there. Do our lives testify that Jesus is the one that makes for peace? Parents, where are we showing our children that true peace lies? If they excel in their academics? If they do well in their extracurricular activities? If they have good behavior? Married folks, are we showing the, the singles in our church family that true peace lies only in marriage? And I would say, really? <laughs> Why would we do that? And yet we do. Would we say to them, if, if you don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend or some significant other that you're in pursuit of, I can't have peace. You can't have peace. Church, where do we find ourselves showing that our true peace lies? If our unbelieving neighbors got a hold of our calendars, would they see that their lives look exactly the same as theirs do? The same calendared activities? Our checkbooks with the same subscriptions, the same usage of money? Would they see similar priorities or would it reveal that our peace just might be found elsewhere. That because of Christ, we have been given the strength to exhaust our resources, to exhaust our beings on others, and that we have given our lives to see that others would be given or would experience the true peace that only Christ himself brings. If Jesus is Messiah, and this is confirmed, you have no good rational explanation for rejecting him as savior of the world. That's what many in the crowd did. This is what the Pharisees did. They kept looking at the facts and completely dismissing them. Prophecy after prophecy he had fulfilled. Situation after situation he had seemingly controlled. Miracles and wonders had happened right in front of their eyes. And yet they said no. If Jesus is king, his humble coronation that we looked at this morning shows us a way that we can, as Christians, live under God's good rule and reign, and we must submit ourselves to him. And if Jesus is judge, he has the final say. 
if you would but just trust in Christ Jesus by faith this morning for the forgiveness of your sins. You won't experience him in that way.